0: Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. It's really good to be back with you this afternoon. What a great day it has been. Wonderful opportunity of worship this morning and then the wonderful fellowship meal that we had. No doubt, no doubt, this will be another great time of fellowship and enjoyment. And the ladies here at Olive Branch, your reputation is stellar when it comes to groceries they asked me at the McMinnville I was there a couple of weeks ago and I told them it was going to be a 10 pound meeting and after they figured out what I was talking about they said well what's the biggest meeting you ever had I said Olive Branch 25 pound meeting <laughs> I appreciate so much the good singing brother Uh, what beautiful singing we've had. Great singing allows for mediocre preaching, and I am tickled to be able to be the preacher and not the song leader because I will be able to give you some mediocre preaching. I appreciate you being here. I hope that you will help me stay awake. Somebody said, you going to get a nap? I said, yeah, during the sermon. I told Linda Howell, who's here with me from Fayetteville, they're from this neck of the woods, but they came to visit. Linda had a class reunion, and uh, so they're here. And I told Linda, I said, make sure I'm awake before it's my time to be on. But uh, you stay awake, and I'll do my best to stay awake. i reminded of the preacher that asked this woman as they were walking out one Sunday. He said, is that your husband that sits beside you? She said, yeah. He says, well, why don't you do me a favor, and why don't you when he goes to sleep, punch him and wake him up. She said, I'm not going to do it. He said, what? She said, you put him to sleep, you wake him up. <laughs> so with that good sister's advice, if I see anybody sleeping, I'll wake you up. We started a series this morning on I believe, activate, what I believe to be activating the book of Acts. I believe, church, that God has positioned us, His children, in this time in history for greatness. I believe that things are happening on the world and in the world today that God is positioning His children to carry triumphantly His message to the world. I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, but I can stand back and I can see changes that are happening. In our United States of America, this is not the same America it was 20 years ago. I'm sure I have within the sound of my voice in this audience perhaps men who fought, women who were involved in World War II. This is not the same country that existed over 60 years ago. The same sense of pride is not here. We would have never, ever stood for anybody Anybody disrespecting our flag. We would have stopped a ball game and insisted on a man taking his hat off during the National Anthem. And today, some of our children don't even know that that's a sign of respect. When the Star Spangled Banner is played to this day because I was taught by my parents, I stop wherever I am and I place my hand over my heart out of respect. We don't live in that country anymore. We don't live in a country to where we frequently pray for our leaders. You say, oh, but... No, 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 I'm talking about gathering time to pray for our leaders. We prayed for our president, our vice president, our representatives on a daily basis, not just when we were at need or had been attacked in war, but I can remember as a child that whoever was sitting in the office of the president was prayed for at my house and at the congregation where I went on a regular basis. We don't do that much anymore. Times are changing. There are men and women that we elect to office who hold values that are inconsistent with the Word of God. Defining who do they think they are simply because they've been elected by a group of people and they sit in a white painted building and they sit in a chair that represents a group of people, who do they think they are in determining what marriage is? And yet we have people who my grandmother would say are just a little bit too big for their britches, trying to make decisions that aren't theirs to make. It's not the same country we had 20 years ago. It's a country to where authority is disrespected, to where a military man is not one honored and revered, but somebody who has gone into the military for career sake in most cases. And when they come home, oh, we think about them and we respect them less and less as war and war happens. But it's not the same country it used to be. And I believe that God has positioned us as Americans, for His Word to have free course throughout this world. The day's coming that we will not enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy now. I'm going to preach it while I can because the day's coming that they're going to sanction us, tax us, do things to us as churches that they've never done before because we have spoken boldly out against the direction that our country's going in. And brethren, it's happening now. and We better... Take note. And we had better start focusing on the world and the lost people of it because there's no election. Listen to me. There's no election. There's no war. There's no tragedy brought on by weather or by earthquake or by fire that will change the direction of the people of this world. The only thing that will change the direction is the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Most High Potentate, Jesus the Christ. And when we, the church, come to that realization, then we will focus on what we must do, and we. We'll get the word out. This week in this time together, this we together, the church, the ecclesia, the called out, the fellowship of believers, the community of believers, when we've come together this week, we're going to re-examine Acts and we're going to look at what they did and what we need to do They're not cultural principles. They're not principles that, oh, they could do that in their day. We can't. No, 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 no. These are God-given ways in which to get the gospel out, and we've got to do it. This morning in Bible class, it can be done. And if you're of the mindset that it can't, I challenge you to repent from your rotten, stinking attitude because we don't need any foot-draggers in the army of the Lord. Number two, we looked at this morning. We've got to come out from behind closed doors, scared to death. While truth is strapping on its boots, error is encircling this world, and we've got to get out from behind closed doors. It's time to quit retreating. It's time to start advancing. It's time to quit scheduling cruises on the luxury cruise boats, and it's time to get back on the battleships. It's time to come out of our Taj Mahals and our high towers with beautiful penthouses in them and get back in the tents and the battlefield, church, because we're losing ground in the only battle that matters, and that's the battle for souls of men and women beginning with yours. Ephesians chapter 6. We've got to get out from behind those closed doors. What I want to look at this afternoon is they did it. Against all odds. They, Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, within a short time period from Pentecost, got the word all around the world. All around the world, every creature under heaven had heard the saving power of Jesus Christ, and when it was left into my and your hands, we dropped the ball, and it's time to pick it up, and it's time to get the job done. And they did it against all odds. It wasn't politically correct to preach Jesus in their day and time. It wasn't popular among the historians. Oh, for a Jew to sell property that had been in his family for centuries... When against the very grain of Judaism and against their heritage. Yet my brethren in the first century church, when they saw need, were taking their property and selling it and bringing the proceeds to the one sent, the apostles sent by Jesus. Laying it at their feet for distribution among the saints. That wasn't popular in the Jewish culture. Another thing that was not popular, against all odds they did it, there was an equalization in the church. Slaves were no longer looked down upon. Indentured servants were no longer looked down. Go read Roman history. Five different classes of people. All the way up to the highly educated, citizen-born, wealthy, down to the poor indentured servant. And all between the book of Philemon and Onesimus, a great, equalizing, liberating book. Women had very little say, but in the church, while it was a woman who made it first to the grave of Jesus, women financed much of the work of the early apostles. They were elevated to the place where God intended for them to be. It wasn't popular for women to be in such a movement, but they were. The early church got the gospel to the world against all odds, and we can do it today. If you have your copy of the text. I challenge you to turn to the book of Acts, the book of actions, the history book of the first century church. Chapter 4. And I want to outline just a few things that they did that we can do that will propel us into action. Folks, we've got to get busy. I'm not a golfer. I've played putt-putt, and I wasn't too good at that. Some real good friends of ours lived on the golf course there in McDonough, and they had a soap for supper, and I don't know which hole they lived on, but they lived on some hole. didn't make sense to me why you go around telling somebody I live on a hole. I'd be ashamed to live on a hole, but they was proud of it. And so he took me out there to that hole and handed me a golf club and a golf tee and a ball and he set it up and he said, rare back and hit the thing. Well, I did. And he said, man, you're a natural. I handed him the club back and said, well, then that's all I need to do. And I've never hit a golf ball since. I heard about the man who went golfing. And he wasn't too good at it. He hadn't played much and he was playing with a couple of experts and it became his turn and he uh, had hit the ball and it went not very far but it came out and it was sitting on an ant hill and he thought how advantageous it was for him that he wouldn't have to hit it off the ground, he could hit it off that ant hill. Well, he reared back and swung and I mean, ant hill dirt and ants went everywhere, balls still sitting right there. I mean, he scattered ants all over creation. Well, he took a little deep breath and said, well, I'll try this again. Where he reared back and he swung again and he hit the anthill again and missed the ball. ball still sitting right there. Ants went everywhere. Third time he reared back and swung and missed again, brother. All that was left of that anthill was just where the ball was sitting. Two little ants were there and one of them was headed for the golf ball. The other one said, what are you doing? He said, (laughs) if we're going to get anything done around here, we better get on the ball. Folks, that's where we are in the church. If we're going to get anything done, we better get on the ball. And I want to give you four quick points from Acts chapter 4. You know what had happened. Peter and John had gone up to the temple, a sight that they had seen all their lives, though they didn't grow up in Jerusalem. But from a child, they had journeyed to Jerusalem as Hebrews and Israelites for feasts. And they had seen that white foundation of that beautiful temple mound there where the God was worshipped. Christ had come and they had understood that that old law was nailed to the cross. Oh, they would stumble with it in time. Brother Peter would. Brother Paul would have to confront him. Brother Paul had to defend his apostleship and the fact that he preached Judaism was dead. But yet they understood that Christ had come and Christ was where salvation had. They decided to go down to the temple that day around the hour of prayer. And as they went, they probably ran across somebody that they had seen before. There was a man laid at the gate and he begged for alms. You know what the scripture says, they fixed their eyes, on him? And Peter said that the man asked and he says, what I have I'll give you. I don't have silver and gold, but what I've got I'll give you. He took him by the hand, and the man that had been lame from his mother's womb left. Word got out all over that temple property that he was walking. People come and ask where he come, how did he do that? How did they get that power? And they began to preach unto them Jesus, and they preached to those people Jesus, much like the sermon that he preached on Pentecost. Well, the next day came, and the officials heard of it, And they called for Peter and John. They knew they had to do something because what they were doing was causing a ruckus within that town that would close down the theocracy of Israel, which was in place not at the will of God, but at the will of man. And it needed to be closed down, and Jesus was the only thing that would do it legitimately with God's blessings, was Jesus and Him crucified. So they called these men in, and they began to talk to these men. Verse number 6 of chapter 4, And Ananias the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power, or by what name, have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of the people of Israel, and the elders of Israel, if we be examined to this day of the good deed done to the infinite man, by what means he's made whole, be it known unto all of you and the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone, said it not, of you builders, which has become the head corner. You get the scene of what's happening here. They're out proclaiming Jesus, and it's threatened to the people, and against all odds they stand up against the hierarchy, the top The number one, the person that can go to Rome and do to you what he did to Jesus, have you killed. Now how did they have this ability against all odds to stand up? Number one, I present to you, they were saved and they knew it. Listen to this. He says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name. Who are you talking about? I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, Christ, Christos, the one sent, the anointed one, the Savior. That there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be Saved That early church beginning with Brother Peter and Brother John knew that they were saved and they believed that they were saved and based upon that knowledge and that belief they became activated to proclaim Jesus. And church, I'm convinced today that there are those who will pillow their heads tonight who have been Christians, who have been raised in the church who have raised their children in the church and will wonder tonight if they're saved. And we need to stop preaching this scare them to death doctrine. Oh, I believe in hell. I believe in hell so much that I can almost preach it to where you'll feel the heat. Just turn the air conditioner down and cut me loose. I believe in hell, and I believe that there are lost people going there. I believe that the way is narrow that leads to life and broad that leads to destruction But in our preaching fear into the hearts, we've scared our brethren to death to where they don't know whether they're saved or not. The early church knew they were saved and they knew how they were saved. And because of that salvation, it produced a confidence in them that they were able to go out and share it. I preach grace because I believe the Bible teaches it. I've heard people say, I'm so tired of that love, love, love stuff. (laughs) Well, just let me know when you get tired. I'll give you some hellfire and damnation. Matter of fact, I'll make you realize you need to repent because when you figure out what New Testament love is, it's work. It's not a feeling. 1 Corinthians 13 is work. You be kind to somebody that's been ugly to you. You think the best of everybody even when they don't deserve it. That's work. You do for them when they wouldn't do for you nothing. That's work. That's the love I'm talking about. Grace. Grace defined. Go to the original language and come and put it in modern day Southern. It means this. Grace is giving you What you don't deserve. You've got an inheritance, church. Read 1 Peter and 2 Peter. You have an inheritance because you're children of God. You have a right to the inheritance because you're His child. You've been washed in the blood by the Lamb. You have been made whole. And as a result of that, we're no longer foreigners. We can call Him Abba Father. I have a personal relationship with Him. You wear the title of sinner like the rest of us. But you walk in the light as he is in the light. You confess your faults and he is faithful to forgive them. That's grace. Mercy is not giving you what you deserve. Because you are a sinner. Because you have violated God's law. Because you have violated God's rightness. You are a sinner and you deserve death. Including me. Every one of us ought to be lined up and shot because we have defied God. Mercy says I don't get what I deserve. Paul said to the church at Romans, or at Rome, in the book of Romans, in chapter 5, beginning to fall over in chapter 6, Cardinal The cardinal in the 1100s that divided the books into verses and chapters. I believe he missed this one. Cardinal Hugo. I divided it somewhere else. Paul talking about the law, saying that the law is dead. The law is of none effect. We're under the law of Christ. And he says the law of grace. And he says where sin abounds, so does grace. The more. And then Paul says, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? God forbid. It's not a motivating factor. You realize what happens is when we go in that direction of God and we fall short, we mess up. And bear in mind, if the devil ain't got you, he's after you, and you're going to be tempted. And when you fail to see the way of escape, First Corinthians chapter ten and verse number thirteen. Also, when you forget what Paul or Peter said to the persecuted brethren, God knows how to deliver the righteous and you fall prey to the devil's sin, you have grace in your life when you recognize that and pray God to forgive you. The more you sin, the more grace. James says the same thing. And yet, we have brothers and sisters so scared that they are scared stiff for fear they might present the gospel the wrong way, say the wrong thing, and thus... We have have broke them down to where they're so afraid to step out and do anything for fear of sin. And you know if I sin, I'm going to die and go to hell. Brethren, we need to be studying grace. Not to the point that you can't fall from grace. It's ludicrous to think you can't fall from grace. Read the book of Galatians. I marvel that you are so soon removed from the gospel which I preach, the gospel of Christ, which really is another gospel. You're going back and saying something else saves you besides Christ, and that is what will cause you to fall from grace, because there's salvation under no other name. And Paul says in verse chapter 5, verse 4, and he ties chapter 1 in there, that we are fallen from grace when we leave the doctrine of Christ. Don't tell me you can't fall from grace. You can. What was the reason for the book of first and second Peter? Those people were being persecuted, those people were being chased down, those people were being called upon to give their life for Christ, and some were in doubt. Is this the Christos? Is this the one sent? Is this Jesus of Nazareth? That some of you even know, that some of you have seen, that I've heard about. Is he truly the one? Is he worth dying for? And Paul or Peter writes and says, Hold on. Hold on, don't give your faith up. You have an inheritance. An inheritance to who? The saved. If I give it up, then I can lose it. I'm falling from grace. Why did the Lord do a roll call in the seven churches of Asia and point out their sinful direction they were going in. If you couldn't fall from grace, you can. But brethren, we need to rally in grace. We need to be victorious in grace. It's because of grace that we work. Ephesians chapter 2, He created us. We are His workmanship. And it's not for grace we work. It's because of grace we work. And when you realize just how saved you are, you will be an unstoppable force. Peter, a big mouth fisherman, sitting with the high priest and confronting him with Jesus. I'm going to tell you how Peter did that. He knew he was saved. Secondly, they were bold. Look at the next verse. Now when they the high priest and the top dogs of Israel, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. When you let Jesus step in your life, you will have a new confidence beyond what you've ever had and will be bold Not rude, not crude, but bold. How many of you have family members that are not a part of the blood-bought institution called the church? If God were to send His Son back tonight, how many of you have family members that would die and go to a devil's hell because they're ignorant of God's plan for saving man? How many of you will go to work tomorrow and will sit beside someone in a desk or in a cubicle, or run across them in a break room that you love to the point that you would do anything for, but you haven't talked to them about Jesus because you're afraid to. Oh, we can send a missionary to the other side of the world to preach the gospel to a bunch of strangers for us, but we don't have the boldness to speak to the very people that we turn in circles with today because we're afraid. And I'm going to tell you, brethren, what we're afraid of. We're afraid that they will see our inconsistencies. You're preaching the wrong message. You're not the message. Jesus is. And when you allow Jesus to step in your life, And allow him to humble you because he's the answer to your sin problem. Then you will develop boldness which points people to him. Folks, why is it that we've got this mindset that we're right and they're wrong? Take that out of the equation. It's not about right and wrong. It's about heaven and hell. It's about souls. And you know what? When I began to discuss the Scriptures with someone, it's not about me. But you did this. and Yeah, you're right, I did. You remember that too? I wished I hadn't remembered that. I'm sorry you reminded me of that. But you know what? I did that. But this ain't about me. This is about Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. And it's about our sin problem that He can handle if we will surrender to Him and be obedient to Him and live for Him. John was nearby when Peter denied Jesus. These men were working at the house that night when Peter denied No doubt that they had heard that he had some people outside that denied him. John knew that he had. John heard Jesus. But John didn't say, wait a minute, Peter, wait a minute. We can't talk to these people. Remember what we've done. No, they realized that they had been with Jesus, and Jesus had changed their life. Listen, if you're intimidated to share the gospel with your family, transition the attention from your life to Jesus. Because he and he alone is all that can save them, not you. That friend who's working next to you, you're not their Savior. Neither is your church. Jesus is the Savior, and He puts them in His church. Why do we get all debatey and about right and wrong? Man, it's about souls. We can't compromise the gospel nor the doctrine of the New Testament. But we must put the focus on Jesus, and not on ourselves, because Jesus is the one that saves them, not me. All I am is God's messenger boy. They knew they were saved. They were bold because they had been with Jesus. Before I move to the next point, and I know where time's going. Remember in Hebrews four, the cha- the last verse of that chapter, I believe it's sixteen where we're told to boldly go into the throne room of God. How can you do that? God knows everything that you've done. Young people, He knows the sin that you're involved in. He knows the little bit of dope you've smoked. He knows about the little beer you've drank. He knows about the little bit of messing around. You know what I'm talking about. Don't sit there and look stupid. You know what I'm talking about when I say messing around. That you've been involved with. Why, are you old folks lacking you, you, you know what I mean, too. How is it that I can boldly go into the throne room of God? Again, the answer is Jesus. It's not about me, it's about Him. And when I surrender my will and my life to Him, His blood continually cleanses me. Once I've become His Christian, I mean His child in baptism, and I walk in His light, and I stay in His direction, and I live a life of repentance. It's not continual, willful, unrepented sin that I live in. No, it's when I see error in my way, I fall on my face like David and say, "Create in me, O God, a clean heart." It's that repentant attitude that puts me into being a man after God's own heart. You see, I'm his child. That's why I don't have to knock at the door. That's why I don't have to ask somebody to go in for me. I'm his child. I can go in any time because my brother, my big brother, Jesus, and he called himself our brother, made the way for me. You see, boldness isn't being crash. It isn't being rude. is isn't being ugly. Boldness is a secondary benefit of humility brought on by knowing who you are in Christ. I challenge you. Remember you're saved. Don't forget you've been with Jesus. You've been with Jesus. That humbles you, and a result of that is boldness. Thirdly, don't be afraid. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. They were not afraid. They were courageous. Courageous. Courage isn't moving forward in the absence of fear. Courage is moving forward knowing the fear. There are going to be folks that are against us when we preach Jesus. There's a whole group of people. Matter of fact, over two-thirds of the world's population don't view Jesus as the Savior Some view him as just another teacher and the Messiah is still going to come. We protect that people as a nation. And then there's another whole group of people that just see him as a good old guy. That their man came before him and he's the focus. You know, some of them, when we start preaching Jesus, are going to feel it necessary because of the era that they've been taught to come after us. They'll censor us through the TVs first and through the airwaves, and they'll tax our buildings, and they'll put uh, things on us that we can't say. And then when that doesn't work, because you see, we have courage, we don't let fear stifle us, the day might come that they start requiring our lives. Peter and John both said, My life means nothing in comparison to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They weren't afraid of anything. Against all odds, this ragtag team of people turned the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ because they knew they were saved They were bold because they understood whose presence they had been in. It had humbled them, and a benefit of humility is boldness. They had courage because they weren't afraid. And then lastly, they were not intimidated to confront sin. You keep reading, and you'll read about a man named Simon the Sorcerer. Before you get there, you'll read about Ananias and Sapphira early church wasn't afraid to confront sin. Simon the sorcerer, seeing the power of the Holy Spirit, he said, can I buy that? You see, he had said, I don't need this Jesus thing anymore. I can gain all the fame and fortune I need with my magic and this power of the Holy Spirit. Just let me buy some of it. I don't need him anymore. By the power of the strength of my hand, I can be successful. Forget this. Soul stuff. I want this stuff right now. That man fell from grace. And you know what Brother Peter said to him? I perceive that thou art in the gall, in the bitterness, in the hook, line, and sinker of sin. Repent, therefore, of this thy evilness or wickedness and pray that God will forgive you. They weren't afraid to confront sin. Same folks that carried your spouse out for lying going to carry you out too. That's what they said to Ananias and Sapphira. you got somebody in that church committing fornication, living with his daddy's wife. You're proud of it? Flee fornication. Here's what I want you to do before I get there, church at Corinth. You put him out because he is involved in hideous, Sin that's not even named among the Gentiles. Timothy, beware. There's going to be false teachers. They're going to come. Matter of fact, Timothy, watch out because they're going to come teaching stuff to satisfy themselves. And when they do, you mark them. Before they had the cry session on the Isle of Miletus with Brother Paul, the shepherds at Ephesus got a what I call a stern talking to. Beware, because from among you, shepherds, will rise up wolves. That early church wasn't afraid to confront sin. Why? Because they loved each other, not because they were better than the other. Because they understood the consequences of continual, willful, unrepented sin. For the child of God, it meant you were fallen from grace and that you were worse off than you were in the beginning. Brother Peter says it's dog puke-eating dogs, and mud-wallering hogs. That's what he describes children of God who go back into the world willingly and sinfully and unrepentantly. Puke-eating dogs. I don't even like to say it makes me sick. And mud-wallering hogs. They weren't afraid to confront sin from the inside or the outside. How did they do it against all odds? They pillowed their head every night knowing they were saved by Jesus. They were bold because they had been in His presence and He had put them in a point of humility which produced a boldness to speak the truth. They weren't afraid, they were courageous. Because they knew they had an inheritance. And then lastly, they weren't afraid to confront sin. Whether it was on the inside of the body or the outside of the body. The devil is the father of sin and he's our enemy and they weren't afraid to confront him. Church, we can use those same principles today and we, like them, can get the message to the world. We might have to do a little bit of house cleaning. We might have to teach a little bit on grace and build the confidence of our members that we're saved and we're saved by Jesus and Him alone. We might have to introduce them to Jesus and teach more about Jesus so they will know they've been in His presence and they'll humble themselves which will produce boldness. We've got to teach them that they've got an inheritance that God has something more than this world in store for you. Don't be afraid even if they come after your life. And then we've got to make a, our brethren. we might to teach them to hate sin to the point that they'll confront it, even if it's in their house, in their life, or in the world they live in. But if we'll do those things, I promise you, we'll turn this world upside down in 2009 in our lifetime. And folks, it can be done. If you've got a little house cleaning to do, I challenge you to do it. If you don't, join me on the battlefield and let's triumphantly take this gospel to every creature beginning here. If you're not a Christian, become one today. I've told you several times how. If you've fallen from grace, come home. We need you in the battle. If you need our help in any way, please come forward while together we stand in sing. I fall.